12th of Tammuz, we celebrate the release from communist imprisonment, from Soviet imprisonment, of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. 1927, and communism was very intense. There was even a Jewish communist party called Yevsekzia, the Jewish division. And these communists were determined to put an end to all observance and practice of Judaism, to the study of Torah, and became mortal enemies of the Rebbe who spent his entire life making sure that Judaism would continue to thrive and carry over into the next generation. When they came to arrest the Rebbe, it was after a long day and night of meetings and discussions that left the Rebbe very exhausted. He came home close to midnight to have supper. And as he was sitting down to supper, these two officials came bursting into the apartment with armed guards and announced that they were here to search the apartment. Now, there are certain kinds of evil, there are certain kinds of of, uh, unholiness that you have to deal with, argue with, respond to, disprove. There are certain kinds of evils which you shouldn't respond to at all. The Rebbe decided that this evil of communism, and particularly the attempt to stifle religion and, and Yiddishkeit, was the kind of evil that you don't respond to. You don't give it any recognition. You give it no power. You give it no authority at all. And so immediately, the Rebbe took that attitude, took that position. And when they stormed into the apartment and they said, uh, is this the Schneerson home? <clears throat> the Rebbe said, I would assume that before you break into somebody's apartment, you know who lives there. Everybody knows who I am, and there's no need for this uh, dr- for the dramatics. They went to search the apartment, and of course that meant that they had become confident enough to arrest the Rebbe, thinking that they had grounds or proof or whatever to make the arrest stick. They went searching from room to room. The Rebbe's daughters, the Rebbe had three daughters, the Rebbe's daughters were there, and uh, they got into a conversation with these officials and started arguing. The Rebbe says in his diary, he was very proud of the way his daughters spoke, but it was futile. They were trying to reason with people who were not reasonable. For example, one of the officials asked one of the daughters, what party do you belong to? And she said, my father's party. Uh, The official made some kind of a threat, and the daughter said, see, that's your problem. You come 
to intelligent people and learned people, and you try to intimidate them with the threat of a fist. Eventually, when the daughters realized that this was going to be an arrest, they started to plead with the officials. And the Rebbe called them aside and said, this is your will speaking, not your intelligence. You wish so strongly to be able to reason with them that you're going to try to do that. But you know it's not, it's not effective. They took the Rebbe to prison and promised that he would be given his talus and tefillin so that he could pray. When they took him into the first interrogation, and these two officials from the Jewish section of the of the uh, of the Communist Party were present at the at the interrogation. The Rebbe said, "I'm not going to answer any questions until I've been given my talis and tefillin." And they said, "There's plenty of time for that. Right now, you have to answer these questions." He said, "I won't answer the questions until I'm given the talis and tefillin as promised." So one of the officials got really upset, and he said, "Don't you realize where you are?" because the building and everything about this building was was designed to demoralize and intimidate. And they were surprised that the Rebbe wasn't intimidated. So they said, don't you realize where you are? And the Rebbe said, I know where I am. I am in a place that is not, that doesn't have to have a mezuzah. See, every doorpost has to have a mezuzah except a barn or a bathroom. So the Rebbe said, yes, I know, I know I'm in a place that doesn't need a mezuzah. The Rebbe explained that what the previous Rebbe meant by that was not just an insult, but that he wanted to introduce the subject of mezuzah because there was no mezuzah. Later in the, uh, in the interrogation, when the Rebbe kept refusing to answer, one of the officials said, we don't have time, we don't have all night to argue about your, your, your religious needs. We're here to get some answers and, uh, and we want it done quickly. And the Rebbe said to him, don't hurry. Under this new system of government, there's no reason to hurry. You can wait patiently because your turn will come too. They'll come after you soon too. Don't hurry. And of course, in the end, Stalin wiped out the entire Jewish Communist Party out of his paranoia. At any rate, they took the Rebbe to his cell. And this was in some kind of a dungeon, three stories below ground level. And they were going down these steep metal staircases um, when the guard who was leading him to his cell started describing the pleasure that he has in torturing prisoners. The guard walked ahead of the Rebbe, leading the way to the cell. The Rebbe had his film by then, and being worried that he might not have a chance later on to put on the film once in the cell, he began to put on the film as they were walking along. The guard turned around and noticed what the Rebbe was doing, and became so furious that he shoved him down a staircase. And the Rebbe was painfully injured in the fall. 
Eba describes the prison and the system of the prison where um, there is no light, there are no clocks. The only way you know whether it's day or night is by estimation. The Rebbe was granted certain privileges through the Russian Red Cross where he didn't have to take the constitutional walks through the, uh, through the courtyard and he was allowed to have a pencil and paper to, to continue his writings. He was also given permission to have uncut uh, loaves of challah brought in on Fridays so that he could have the complete challah on which to uh, make the bracha for Shabbos. During one of the interrogations where he was processed into the prison, he was taken into a large room where there were many desks and secretaries were interviewing and filling out forms for the various prisoners. He was sitting there at the desk and he noticed that in the center of the room there was a raised platform and there was a very officious looking man overseeing all the activity in the room. And he noticed that any time he looked at a certain desk, the secretary there became very tense and nervous. Anyway, the secretary started asking questions, filling out forms. She asked the Deborah which party he belonged to. And he said he belongs to the party that believes in one God, who is the creator of all, and so on and so forth. And she said, I can't write that. So the Deborah said, don't write it. You ask me a question, I'm giving you the answer. Anyway, she became flustered and kind of motioned for the uh, supervisor to come over. When the supervisor approached and the secretary became appropriately nervous, before the official could say anything, the Rebbe said to him, uh, is smoking permitted here in this room? The official was flabbergasted. Nobody had ever asked him that before. Prisoners were too intimidated to even think of it. And in this manner, the Rebbe continued to treat everyone involved in this, in this uh, cell, in this prison. For lack of cooperation, the Rebbe was even placed in solitary confinement. And the way the Rebbe describes it in his diary is that other prisoners had been put into the solitary confinement for an hour and they came out stark raving mad. It's a tiny little room where you stand up to your knees in mud and there are vermin of all kinds running around. It is so completely dark you cannot see anything at all. You lose all sense of time and space. You become totally disoriented, except for the animals that are crawling on you. And an hour spent in there reduces a person to, to, to a lunatic. They have spent more than an hour there. Finally, through intervention of foreign governments and, and, and others, they came to tell the Rebbe that he was being released. Now, the, the, um, the rules in the prison were that any message being delivered from the headquarters or from the office had to be received standing up out of respect. So they came into the Rebbe's cell and they said, stand up, we have a message for you. 
He said, I'm not going to stand up. They said, we'll beat you. He said, do what you have to do. And so they beat him until he was unconscious. They came back and again said, stand up. We have a message for you. He refused. They said, we're going to beat you. He said, nope. So they beat him again. And when they came back the third time, the Jewish official who had arrested him was with them. And he said, uh, a guard said, stand up, we have a message for you. And the Rebbe didn't answer. So the Jewish communist said, Rebbe, they have good news to tell you. So the Rebbe said, good news I can certainly hear sitting down. They didn't know what to do. So they finally came up with a brilliant idea. They asked the Rebbe to come to the office. So the Rebbe followed them to the office, and there in the office, they told the Rebbe that he was being released. In fact, there was a moment when they had walked away from the desk, and the Rebbe took a glance at his file. And he noticed that the the first ruling, the first... um, sentence that had been written on the paper had been wiped out or whited out, completely um, illegible. And what it said was death sentence. It was wiped out, it it was whited out, and under it was written 10 years labor camp. And that was crossed out with a line through the words. And under that it said three years exile to Kastrama. So they told him that he was being released and that he would be sent to this little village of Kastrama as an exile for three years. The Rebbe asked when the train would arrive in Kastrama and they said in two days, which would be Shabbos. So the Rebbe said, I'm not going. They said, well, you can't stay in a prison once you've been released and you're not a prisoner anymore. You can't stay in the prison. The Rebbe said, I'm not going. And they had to give in on that too. And they allowed him to stay until Sunday. Word got out that the Rebbe was being released. And when he went to the train station in Petersburg to uh, to leave for Kastrama, more than 300 Hasidim had gathered to see him off. And from the back of the train, <clears throat> the Rebbe spoke to the Hasidim and he said, we have to say out loud and, uh, and boldly to all the nations of the world that only our bodies are in exile. Our souls never went into exile. And there is no jurisdiction that anyone has over the Jewish soul. He arrived in Kastrama, and a few days later he was told that even that had been canceled and he was free to go home. And that was the 12th day of Tammuz. The Rebbe, in speaking about his father-in-law and relating all these stories, pointed out the fact that when this Jewish communist came to tell the Rebbe that he was being released, and the Rebbe refused to stand up, the Jewish communists referred to him as a Rebbe. 
which was really not allowed under the Soviet code. There were no titles. Everyone was comrade. Everyone was equal. And yet here, this avowed communist spontaneously referred to the Rebbe as Rebbe, which means that the, the victory, the Rebbe's victory, was not only a physical one, it's not only that he gained physical freedom, but that he had, in fact, persevered and that he had uh, succeeded in convincing even this die-hard communist that Judaism will continue and that Torah and mitzvahs and Rebbe are here for keeps and that communism will disappear long before Judaism does. In fact, in a very uh, poignant moment, the Rebbe's father, his father-in-law, of course, was was uh, suffered for Yiddishkeit, but his father, who lived in the Ukraine, also was arrested by the communists, and he was exiled and died in exile. And the main reason for his imprisonment was not because, not so much because he practiced Judaism, and not even because he taught Judaism to adults who were already indoctrinated and hopeless, but because he taught Judaism to children. He kept the uh, schools going in which children were taught the Torah. And for that, he was arrested. On his father's yard site, the Rebbe would, would speak in public, would have a fabrengen. This is the 20th day of of. And uh, there was one time when a, a busloads of kids came in from the Catskills, from the camps that they were attending. They came in to be at the Fabrengen. And in the middle of the Fabrengen, uh, the Rebbe asked them to repeat by heart the verses that they had studied and had memorized. And uh, one after another, the kids got up and they loudly uh, reviewed the, the verses that they had memorized. And the Rebbe was speaking at that time about the communists arresting his father because he was teaching children Torah. And the contrast was so powerful. The communists, a world power, possibly the second most powerful country in the world at that time, had made its best effort concentrated effort at preventing Jewish children from studying Torah. And they arrested the Rebbe's father because he continued to teach children Torah. Now, logically, conventionally, who was going to win? Who was going to come out at the top in the end? A few helpless Jews or the second most powerful country in the world? They were determined to stop the education of Jewish children in Torah. And to do that, they arrested the Rebbe's father. Now, this man who they arrested, his son is sitting in Brooklyn. Jewish children are proudly, loudly proclaiming verses of Torah that they had memorized by heart. And communism is gone. 
by taking that attitude, which has become pretty common among uh, refuseniks, by taking the attitude that evil is false, false is untrue, untrue is unreal, and therefore no reaction, no response, no respect, no awe for these for these people or for their philosophy. That eventually undermined the entire communist uh, philosophy and 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 brought an end to it destroyed it from the inside. So the story of the previous Rebbe, um, as he describes it in his diary, in such human terms, um, where what he remembered, what he was thinking when he went into this room or that room, uh, the strength that he drew from what his father had taught him, what his father had, had uh, said on various occasions, it's such an intimate glimpse into the inner workings of a Rebbe's mind under circumstances that were superhuman that uh, reading that story with all, of course, I'm just, I'm just touching on the highlights, but reading that story with all of its details is a very illuminating and very educational uh, piece of, of Torah and that the Rebbe made that diary or that part of his diary available was a big blessing and a big gift to all of us. The previous Rebbe was a veteran of prisons in Russia. He was actually arrested five different times. And the first time was when he was a little boy. And he was walking down the street and he saw a Russian policeman harassing an elderly Jew, accusing him of having stolen a calf. And without thinking, this little boy, the Rebbe, jumped on the, uh, on the, on the policeman, trying to distract him from beating up on this elderly Jew. Because the policeman threw the boy into jail. Sitting in jail, in a dark room, very frightened, he suddenly heard strange noises coming from the other side of the cell, a moaning or groaning that frightened him terribly. And he decided that he would stay calm by reviewing the, mish- the Mishnahs that he had memorized by heart. And so he sat there reviewing the Mishnahs until he realized what that sound was. It was a calf. And he struck a match and saw that indeed there was a calf tied up in the corner of the of the cell. Turns out that the policeman had stolen the calf, was hiding it in the jail, in the cell, and was accusing this elderly man of having stolen the calf that he, in fact, had stolen. Well, his father came to, to, uh, to bail him out, and on the way home, he told his father of the calf that was in the... and an investigation was started, and it turned out that the policeman was guilty of the crime, and he was arrested instead. And his father asked him then, how did you spend your time? And he said, I reviewed the missions that I had memorized by heart. That was the first time he was arrested. And that may be attributed to the love that he had for every single Jew 
to where the thought of putting himself in danger, I mean, a Jew attacking a Russian policeman was like unthinkable. You even avoided the street in which the uh, prison, uh, the police station was on because he was so terrified of, of the power that the policeman had. And here, this little boy of maybe seven threw himself on a policeman because he couldn't take the suffering or the pain of this elderly Jew. And that might be because his father once said to him that we have two eyes, the right eye and the left eye. The right eye is supposedly the stronger eye, like the dot on the letter Shin, which is on the right side. The left eye is the weaker eye, like the dot on the letter Sin, which is on the left side. And his father said to him, we have two eyes, because the right eye you're supposed to use to look at a fellow Jew with. And the left eye you're supposed to use to look at candies with. The right eye is the stronger emphasis. The left eye is the weaker emphasis. And as a result of that explanation that Eber writes in his diary, that from that moment on, he felt an endless uh, resource or endless flow of love for a fellow Jew. And from that time on, he didn't enjoy his candies as much. And out of that love, <clears throat> out of that unconditional endless love, he threw himself on a Russian policeman, even as a child, because you cannot stand by and watch a Jew suffer. Then, of course, when he got older and started getting involved in uh, communal affairs and works, there were other occasions when he was arrested. And then finally, when they were determined to really stop the Rebbe permanently, that's when that last imprisonment took place. And the release from that prison became a holiday, not only for Hasidim, but for all Jews. Because the Rebbe didn't exist for himself at all. He existed only as the carrier, the facilitator for Yiddishkeit, for every Jew, everywhere in the world. And so when he was imprisoned, it wasn't an individual who was in prison, it was Yiddishkeit. And when he was released from prison, and even called the Rebbe, and told that he was free even of the exile, that was freedom granted to Yiddishkeit, not just to an individual. Eventually, the Rebbe had to leave Russia. And in 1940, after a few years in Warsaw and in uh, uh, Riga in Latvia, in 1940, the Rebbe came to the United States just before Purim and uh, introduced Hasidus to America. In 1950, ten years later, the previous Rebbe passed away, and the Rebbe, his son-in-law, became the Rebbe of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and now into the 90s. So Yud Beis Thomas is a celebration for Yiddishkeit, for Judaism, not just for an individual. In the same way that um, other holidays earlier in history, which may have uh, involved a certain individual, Rabbi Akiva and his students, not exactly a holiday, a sad day, but it affects the entire Jewish people 
because these individuals did not exist for themselves. They existed for us. Partner with Rabbi Friedman. Visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support.